You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Timeform, the trusted source of racing data and analysis, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Racing App, in partnership with FitzDares. Hi there, good afternoon, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday the 27th of February. A slightly delayed podcast today and fortuitously in many respects as well. Uh, I, as you can probably hear from the noise, I'm in a crowded pub. I'm in a hollow bottom uh, in uh, Temple Guiting in, in Gloucestershire, which is the scene of a, a Cheltenham Festival handicap press reveal. Now, while that was going on, uh, uh, another portion of uh, uh, the racing media were at Kempton Park watching Constitution Hill, the most celebrated uh, horse in um, British or Irish jump racing, uh, have a, what was supposed to be a routine gallop as part of his preparation to win a second champion hurdle, for which he was the long odds on favourite. Uh, the gallop did not go according to plan. Um, and whilst this uh, podcast was going to lead with yesterday's events in Parliament, and you'll be hearing all about that from David Yates and Philip Davis MP in a moment, we need to lead with this uh, news about Constitution Hill, which broke about half an hour or so ago. Jack Keane from The Sun was at Kempton Park. Jack, what happened? Yeah, morning, Nick. Um, so it was pretty dramatic stuff, uh, as you'd expect. Um, there was a handful of us watching uh, the gallop on the all-weather down by the winning post alongside Nicky Henderson. Uh, Michael Buckley was there to watch his horse uh, be put through his paces, as was Barry Geraghty, uh, the, the, the man who obviously sold um, the horse to, to Michael Buckley all those years ago. Um, and it was quite clear, turning into the straight second time around, that something, um, something wasn't quite right. The horse was trailing at least 15 or 20 lengths behind his two work companions. Um, there was visible shock on the faces of of Nicky and Michael Buckley. Uh, Nico jumped off the horse straight after the winning post. Uh, he was whisked off into the racecourse stables where he was scoped by the racecourse vet, uh, Jamie Knapp. Uh, Nicky came out and spoke to us afterwards and said that the scope had produced uh, significant mucus, um, which is obviously far, far from ideal with the champion hurdle just two weeks away. Um, it, obviously, he missed trials day, didn't he, Constitution Hill? Because he, he had an issue in mid-January uh, with a dirty scope. And Nicky said it looks like the same issue had come back to haunt them, um, which is obviously terrible timing with the festival just around the corner. Um, it, it, the, the results of the, um, the scope, we should know them later today um, and whether or not the horse needs antibiotics. Um, but obviously, Nicky is going to be in a race against time to get the horse back in time for Cheltenham is, is going to be uh, fair to say very touch and go that he's going to make it for the big race uh, did the horse uh, seem in any way distressed uh, Jack you were down by the by the winning line and he, he trailed in as you say 20 lengths behind his his stable companions did did he seem to be feeling any any pain or discomfort he, he didn't look any pain or discomfort at all that was one of the first things we asked um, asked Nicky afterwards um, we we're actually there alongside Barney Clifford as well the Kempton clerk of the course and, and he did observe that he, he, it sounded like the horse was making a bit of a noise as he came past the winning post so it was it was clearly a, a, a breathing issue there was no seems to be no physical issue with the horse uh, Nicky said it, he stopped like a horse who'd bled but thankfully that wasn't the case it was it was clearly something to do with his wind um, and they're obviously going to be um, trying to rush to get him back to full health but Nicky did point out to us that you know a cut off point to this sort of thing you're probably looking at this time next week if the horse is still not 100% right then they might have to you know admit defeat as, as regards the champion hurdle yeah there might be a few opportunistic trainers thinking of maybe either supplementing or uh, putting horses in there that weren't uh, otherwise intended and um, what are the what are the betting markets doing how have the betting markets reacted Jack yeah so there was a there was a, a bit of a before the news was made official I think um, it, it somehow it, it leaked out from Kempton there was a bit of movement on Betfair um, Constitution Hill started to drift alarmingly and a lot of the bookies took down their markets um, until we announced the news around around midday-ish. Um, I, I think State Man's into about one to two now uh, with a lot of firms. Uh, Constitution Hill, he varies in, in price from around five to four. Some bookies still have him odds on who are non-runner, no bet. But um, obviously this this is, you know, been a massive shake-up in the, in the markets. Uh, and if Constitution Hill doesn't turn up at Cheltenham, then he's Stateman's going to be a, a, mm. an odds-on, long odds-on favourite, isn't he? Yes, sadly, it has not rendered the champion hurdle any more competitive, even if we have to suffer the blow of Constitution Hill not turning up. Um, Jack Keane from The Sun, thank you very much. Thanks, Nick.
that is Jack Keane from The Sun. Uh, as I said earlier today, before I left to come here to uh, the Hollow Bottom, the, uh, the pub near Cheltenham where the press conference was taking place, uh, I was reflecting on yesterday's events in Parliament and the debate surrounding affordability checks. Um, quite a few more MPs turned up than, than was perhaps uh, thought likely beforehand. And in a moment, you'll be hearing uh, the speech or part of the speech given by Philip Davis, the MP from Shipley, and, and Philip's own reaction to that earlier this morning. First of all, though, uh, I spoke to David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, uh, for his reaction and what he felt having listened to the debate in its entirety. I felt quite comforted by what I saw, Nick. As you would expect, there was uh, a strong defence of horse racing and the expression of fears that the the £50 million hit that uh, these measures might inflict on the sport would uh, put it in, as, as Conor McGinn described it, uh, a death spiral. I thought that looking to the future, there was one aspect of it that did trouble me, and that is that although it was stressed that this was not a party political debate, many of the speakers were Conservative MPs, uh, many of them either from uh, constituencies that included race courses or that uh, bordered constituencies that had race courses. The contributions from Labour MPs were a little thinner on the ground. Uh, obviously, Carolyn Harris, uh, the Labour MP for Swansea East, was was speaking very broadly in support of uh, affordability checks. And also Paul Bloomfield, the um, Labour MP for Sheffield Central, uh, he felt that the, the the threat of the black market had been exaggerated by uh, those who who don't want the um, affordability checks to be uh, introduced. Lee's Lee Mottishead's uh, article in Monday's paper got uh, uh, got quite a bit of coverage, uh, which was good. But the, I think that, as I say, in terms of the party political argument, what troubled me, if the general election result is as predicted, then what we heard yesterday might not be representative of what is felt in the new government. OK, the oratory that's resonated the most subsequent to this debate seems to be the speech that was made by MP for Shipley, Philip Davis, long an advocate uh, of racing. And uh, here's what he had to say. And he began with, with quite an interesting critique of the betting industry. I want to make it clear from the outset that there are two groups I want to speak up for today. The horse racing industry is one, but first and foremost, I want to speak up for punters. The one group of people who have been largely ignored in this long-running debate and tug-of-war over affordability checks. They often get caught up in the crossfire in the arguments between the well-funded betting industry and the well-funded anti-gambling campaigners. Uh, so, Edward, I've got no intention of speaking up for bookmakers, partly because most of them in the industry are big enough to speak up for themselves, and partly because their position on stake restrictions is inconsistent. And that is the kindest word I can use. On the one hand, bookmakers will say it is wrong for the state to restrict how much people can gamble, but on the other hand, the bookmakers are the most guilty of all in restricting the stakes of punters who have the audacity to back too many winners, often to pennies rather than pounds. I've warned them time and again that trying to have their cake and eat it on punter restrictions would backfire, and so until and unless they abandon that anti-punter mentality, what they do on this issue will always be subject to some level of ridicule. The principle that people should only bet what they can afford is not a controversial one. It will be the first advice any of us would give to anyone who starts betting. However, what the government and the Gambling Commission are proposing is completely unacceptable. What is proposed is frictionless checks for people who have a net spend of just £125 over a rolling 30-day period or £500 in a year with enhanced checks taking place for anyone with a net loss of £1,000 in 24 hours or £2,000 over 90 days. Now, I have a number of concerns about this approach, both practically and in principle. I find it somewhat offensive that the Government and the Gambling Commission believe that there is something inherently distasteful about betting. If that is not the case, why does the Government propose this type of affordability check just on gambling? Why do they not ask every retailer in the country to carry out similar checks on customers to, to ensure they can afford to buy whatever it is they come to the counter with? Is the Minister really claiming that nobody spends more on alcohol than is good for them, more on shoes than they should, or more on holidays than they can actually afford? 
Of course, people spend more than they should on all these other things, but the government is only snobbishly treating punters as some kind of pariah, which I do not appreciate. In Parliament, we should stand up for people's freedoms. I don't believe I was elected to Parliament to stop everyone else from doing all the things I don't happen to like myself, but it seems that some in here think their job is to do nothing other than that. It's unacceptable to me that the government, the Gambling Commission and the bookmakers will basically, between them, decide how much each individual punter can afford to spend on their betting. And the punter themselves will get virtually no say in this whatsoever. It's completely outrageous. The Conservative Party used to believe in individual freedom and individual responsibility. And some of us, Sir Edward, still do. But I suspect if you asked everyone how much responsibility each should take for determining how much somebody can afford to spend on betting, I doubt anyone would say the individual concerned had a 0% responsibility for it. But that's the route down which we are in danger of going. Philip Davis, MP for Shipley in Parliament yesterday. We're going to hear from Philip in a minute on the impact, on the likely impact of yesterday's debate. But let's hear a little bit more of him now and specifically on horse racing. And so the more people go to the black market, the less money there is for the sport of horse racing. British racing is the best and most prestigious in the world. It's the second biggest spectator sport in the UK after football, brings a huge amount of foreign investment into the country and is a huge part of the rural economy. It also provides a huge amount of pleasure to millions of people across the country. The government cannot possibly allow itself to introduce measures, however well-meaning, which will have a devastating effect on this great sport. 24,000 race owners in the UK invest over £500 million into the rural economy and pay £32 million a month in training fees, employing over 350 racehorse trainers who employ some 80,000 people. The least they should be allowed is to have a bet on their own horses as well. We can't allow decisions to be made which put that investment at risk. All right, well, that was Philip Davis, MP for Shipley, in um, Parliament yesterday in this in this debate. Uh, and he joins me now uh, this morning, uh, morning after the night before, Philip. Um, what, what impact do you think, not just your words in what's been a well-received speech, but the debate as a whole is likely to have? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think there were, there were promising things about yesterday and there were some disappointing things about yesterday. I think the most promising thing actually was the number of people who turned up to the debate. Um, that, that is certainly, in my experience, a record number of MPs who actually bothered to turn up uh, to a debate on um, horse racing. Uh, and um, that was really, really encouraging. And to be honest, a, a, an awful lot of... Um, a lot of the credit to that must go to the different stakeholders in the racing industry. Um, you know, whether that be the uh, you know the ROA and the the the, the uh, RCA, the the BHA made a massive concerted effort to get MPs to go along, and um, and they did. And I was really surprised. It was packed in there when the debate started, absolutely packed. So that was really promising, and I think that must have given the government a bit of a jolt to see so many people there, uh, and to see pretty much, certainly on the Conservative benches, a united voice. There was, the, 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 I think, uh, there might have been one of the Conservative benches who was a, in any way supportive of what the government were doing. Everyone else were very critical. So I think that was really, really uh, encouraging. Um, the disappointing bit was uh, was the fact that um, you know on the Labour side there was only really one Connor again who's a stalwart on these matters who was really um, supportive of the case that horse racing was making uh, and given where the opinion polls are that that doesn't bode well um, and the other disappointing thing was there wasn't really much change given by the minister who still seemed to be saying that the the, uh, the Gambling Commission were going to plough on with the affordability checks pretty much as were already envisaged. So um, in that sense, it was quite deflating. But um, we've got to keep the pressure up. We can't, we can't give up. Um, and, um, and I think that it was, it was, on the whole, very, very encouraging to see how many MPs feel so strongly about this. Um, which part of, of your speech do you think will have the most impact... <laughs> If any, will it be your point about bookmakers' restrictions? Will it be your point about civil liberties? Or will it be your point about the contribution of horse racing to the exchequer, do you think? What really cuts through in terms of what, for example, the Chancellor of the Exchequer might be listening to? 
be honest, Nick, I'm not. I'm not sure whether any of those things will put, turn out to be the the, the the most important points I made. Actually, I suspect the um, the point I made that might have the most impact actually is a rather technical one, which was about the um, the type of uh, checks that, uh, that that are carried out by bookmakers. Um, it's a Cato check or a score check. Um, which is very technical, but a Cato check basically looks at people's incomings and outgoings from uh, from their account, and, and in effect, it's basically the, the type of thing that people who give loans out look at to see if you can afford a loan. Um, and that basically is a subjective test on whether or not you can afford to pay uh, to, to pay the loan back, and it's sort of subjective test in this case as to whether or not you can afford to gamble. A score test doesn't look at, at that. It looks at your financial distress. Uh, it looks at people who have missed a mortgage payment, got into rent arrears, people who have uh, not paid off the minimum amount on their credit card, things like that. It's an entirely frictionless check which looks at people's financial distress. And um, if the that if we're going to go down the route of affordability checks, and, and the minister pretty much confirmed that we were, um, it's really, really important that we that we have a wholly frictionless check, rather than um, rather than not. And I, I suspect um, it might not be very sexy or very interesting, but I suspect in the long run that may well be the the point that scores the most runs in the long run. That was Philip Davis, the Conservative MP for Shipley, who is, has been a, a very well known fan and supporter of horse racing for for a number of years and he began his his speech before i picked it up there by um uh, re- uh, registering his his interests which occasionally include hospitality from bookmakers and from uh, and from the horse racing industry uh, david i thought i thought his his piece on on bookmaker restrictions was interesting he got that in hard and he got that in early yeah he was clearly uh, very keen not to be seen as as someone who was just speaking up for the the betting industry um bookmakers didn't get a very easy ride in this debate um Ian duncan smith uh, spoke in in very negative terms about them saying that that bookmakers didn't really care about the future of horse racing they just cared about uh, how much money they could get from it but you're you're absolutely right that um lest he be seen as some sort of patsy for the bookmakers um phil davis got in very quickly his uh, his criticism of particularly of restrictions i thought there, that it was a it was a very interesting and in 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 large part a very good speech um he he quoted the uh, the racing post survey of of uh, a few months ago when it asked their own readers who they thought thought was best place uh, to assess whether their own gambling was affordable. Not exactly a surprise result that 96.6% uh, of um, respondents said that they were. Uh, Philip Davis claimed if that isn't a giant raspberry to, propose, to the proposed affordability checks, I don't know what is, which I'd Personally, I thought, well, that although it was a good rhetoric, it really carried uh, very little weight. Um, he spoke about the threat of uh, the black market and, and referenced uh, Lee's piece on Saturday, which I know you featured in yesterday's NLD about the um, the thirteen hundreds. Um, clients of the post bookmakers who expected that ridiculously busy Cheltenham and recommended people uh, deposit as much money as they possibly could uh, before the meeting started. Um, so there was quite a lot of rhetoric. One thing I did think was uh, particularly uh, good about um, Phil Davis's contribution was when he said he, he urged uh, the government and the gambling minister to differentiate between games of skill and chance uh, between sports betting and online slots and roulette. Horse racing is not a game of chance, he said, and in my view, should not be treated as such. This is, this is, this is interesting, David, isn't it? Because this is this is something that the betting industry has pushed back against. You know, the, the, the big betting corporations have pushed back against uh, this for obvious reasons, um, because they don't really want that, that delineation uh, highlighted, because clearly those casino games are... In- incredibly profitable and you do wonder the extent to which horse racing wanting to understandably preserve its its relationship with the with the major bookmakers particularly at a um 
a delicate time surrounding levy negotiations and debate about how much bookmakers are paying through media rights. You sense that horse racing has been quite anxious and nervous to really um, immerse itself in in that position, in that position of please let's have separate wallets, please let's delineate between games of chance, pure chance and, and games that occasionally require skill. This is a very important part of this debate and it's one I think that people in horse racing have to stand up and say we we do think that the government should delineate between these uh, two types of betting um it was something that even Ian Duncan Smith you know you might one might have perceived him as being on the the side of uh, introducing affordability checks and perhaps being anti-gambling. He said, I'm not anti-gambling and I, I go to the horse races and I place bets. I thought he's, he sounded a bit ill-informed about some of his observations about the betting ring. But he said um, that the, uh, the, the, the harm that is being done is through betting on uh, slots, that is, is betting on online casinos. And... This was the the area of gambling that needed to be uh, addressed. He said the real damage lies in the slots, the fast gambling and the speed of all those chases, not in something that takes about four or five minutes to finish. This is all about speed of gambling and the incentive to gamble quickly, quietly and in the darkness of one's own room. Isn't it the case that really this all boils down to whether the exchequer can be convinced that the potential loss to the Treasury is too great to countenance this legislation. Stuart Andrew, although he said, you know, we we will push forward with these measures without uh, doing, you know, doing our absolute best not to uh, harm horse racing, that that they will try and find a way of protecting those uh, who are vulnerable from gambling. And I think that the it's something that perhaps we all agree on that this can be done without uh, huge harm to the the horse racing industry, and hopefully the vulnerable the vulnerable can be protected without a huge hit on that contribution to the exchequer as well. And David, but just to conclude this, if, if there is one clip that will do the rounds over and over again. And I so don't certainly don't mean to to disrespect Carolyn Harris, who is very passionate about the cause in which she believes. It is this one. Respond to that would be just because we haven't got all the answers now doesn't mean to say we shouldn't do anything. And that will that will no doubt infuriate a lot of people. Um, what's your reaction to that? I think one interesting point with that. Nick, is that it was in response to a question by Gerald Jones, a Labour MP for Merthyr Tidville and uh, Rimney, who just said, how can we be sure that these measures will achieve their result? And, and I think this is a, just an interesting conclusion uh, to this part about the um, the debate yesterday. And I think that it's worth saying that the concern expressed by most of the by all the speakers, Matt Hancock, um, George Freeman, whose father Arthur, Arthur Freeman was a, a grand national winning jockey and whose life fell apart. Um, the concern was genuine about the need to protect the vulnerable. The concern equally was expressed that this is not the right way to do it. Um, George Freeman said, I'm fearful we're in danger of making a mistake that I've seen all too often, which is the mistake of do something, Ari. Something must be done. This is something. Let's do it. So, as I say, the concern is genuine. The uh, the, the realisation that gambling legislation needs to be updated for the first time in uh, two decades, that that is real. The, uh, the concern for the... the the hit to racing, etc., is obviously there too. But but what's overriding all this is that I think everyone accepts that something needs to be done. Modernisation, uh, the the need is there for that. But what is proposed at the moment just isn't fit for purpose. All right. Well, as I said at the beginning of the program, last night was the Godolphin Thoroughbred Industry Employee Awards, which took place at Ascot Racecourse in the presence of Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal, who presented the trophy for Employee of the Year. 
And for the first time since 2020, the Employee of the Year went to the winner of the Stud Staff category. And that was David Porter Mackerel from Newsels Park Stud. David, who's built up a, a, an extraordinary affinity with Nathaniel in particular, but cares deeply for all his stallions and has really transformed the ownership experience for clients bringing their mares to Newsels Park as well. Uh, his victory was cheered to the rafters by uh, Julian Dollar, who has been uh, the boss at Newsels for a long time now, and the relatively new owner of the stud, uh, Graham Smith Burnell, who was uh, also in attendance and was similarly uh, delighted. Um, Ed Chamberlain was the master of ceremonies and spoke to David um, who was pretty shell-shocked uh, by uh, the double victory. Right. Try, wow. if you, try if you can, David, to put that into words. You are the winner of the 20th anniversary Employee of the Year Award. No, no words. <laughs> um, just thank you, really. Thank you, Julian, for nominating me. Tell us who we've got here. Who's, who's here from the stud? Julian. The boss. The boss is here. Graham, Marcella. Owners are here. Um, most importantly, my wife. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you two more things about your job, if you don't mind. I sense, listening to you on the VT, one of the things you really want to do, would it be fair, is to inspire youngsters to get into the industry, to get into the sport, and to work at studs. Would that be fair? Yeah, anybody. Like, if you've got a, a care for horses, then this, this game will open its arms and give you an opportunity. And, and how important, and, and this is something the judges talked about, how important, for example, when someone brings a mare to the stud, how important is the client experience and how seriously do you take it? Very important. Uh, yeah, we need clients, we need the owners, we need they're the beating heart of the game. Um, so, yeah. So it's worth you, you take very seriously going that extra mile to give them that enjoyment for any client. Yeah, we do our best, yeah. You Make people welcome and, yeah. You obviously do it extremely well. Thank you. And what have you made, of, try. What have you made of today? What have you made of this whole experience? What have you made of, of the tour you had this afternoon and then this evening? Just overwhelming, really. Just thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great. Now you can celebrate. Yeah, I'm going. <laughs> As you just said to the prince... The Princess Royal asked you had the day off, and the answer was... Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and, and gentlemen... That's right. Let's congratulate our Employee of the Year 2024, <laughs> David Porter Mackerel. So many congratulations. David Porter Mackerel in a state of shock, I think, talking to Master of Ceremonies Ed Chamberlain after winning the prestigious Employee of the Year at the Godolphin Thoroughbred Industry Employee Awards. Other winners last night were Holly Wiltshire for Alan Kingstable, who won the David Nicholson Newcomer Award. Cheryl Armstrong in a very strong category for the leadership uh, from Charlie Fellows Stable. Lindsay Bull who works for Ian Williams, won the Rider Racing Groom category. Uh, Brian Taylor, who works for LG Bloodstock Shipping, won the Dedication Award. And the Community Award went to the extraordinary Lauren Semple, who combines her role uh, at Police Scotland with her role with the Scottish Racing Academy. Congratulations to one and all. Clearly the anticipation for the Cheltenham Festival is now building two of the biggest stables either side of the RHC, flung open their doors to media members yesterday. Gordon Elliott in Ireland and, and Paul Nichols uh, down in Somerset. Were there any um, nuggets there, David, that you thought were interesting that you weren't aware of already or that at least um, made you sit up and take notice? Well, I suppose Paul Nichols speaking about Brave Man's game, uh, second in the Cheltenham Gold Cup, of course, last March. Um, his reputation, I think it's fair to say, has Perhaps his stock has fallen this season with regard to the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Um, Nichols, as you would expect, gave uh, a positive bulletin, bulletin with regard to Brave Man's game, you know, that, that he needs to be mad fresh uh, and that he's confident in his chances uh, or, or that he'll run very well in the Cheltenham Gold Cup. It's a pretty small uh, but quite select team uh, from Ditchett this year. Ginny's destiny... Um, the novice chaser uh, who'll run in the the Turner's novices chase. Uh, obviously, he spoke glowingly about Ginny's destiny, saying that I'd say he's our, uh, one of our best chances and he's still improving. Um, stage star, of course, uh, who's in 
the Ryanair Chase is a, a Cheltenham Festival winner um, that's he's got to bounce back from a disappointing run um, at Cheltenham on New Year's Day but he got uh, good crits as of course did Stay Away Faye winner of the Albert Bartlett last year and a leading candidate for the Brown Advisory Novices Chase so you know over the last few years we've uh, become used to the uh, the Paul Nichols view that Cheltenham is not the be all and end all but He'll certainly go there with a, a couple of live chances and it'd be a surprise if he didn't knock in a winner or two during the four days. And sort of confidence seems to be growing that Gordon Elliott can hit hit his stride at the right time, having had a very good early part of the season, but sort of slightly wiped out in grade ones by Mullin since Christmas. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the uh, we, we spoke in the, the first part of the season about whether uh, there could be a, a, a genuine title rivalry between these two. I think I probably did that more in hope than expectation because I just think it would be an interesting thing if we wound the clock back five or so years. It, it went really close, didn't it? That that last day, I was covering it from the press room at Sandown on um, the Jumps Finale card, and, and it was really... Um, a, a contest that went one way and then the other but yeah it, it the the Dublin Racing Festival was not a place to look for Gordon Elliott winners particularly but he's got a, a, a pretty decent hand uh this uh this season at Cheltenham brighter days ahead is perhaps his, his best chance in individually in the Mayor's Novice Hurdle obviously he's got a, a really strong hand in the the cross country not exactly one of the uh races that trainers dream of winning I suspect at the Cheltenham festival but one that's been kind to Gordon Elliott uh, over the years and of course uh, Chupu and Irish Point are leading contenders uh, for the Stayers. A another horse that I think is quite interesting is uh, Jalon Duderi. This horse is uh, owned by uh, the Jigginstown House Stud and they don't generally like horses uh, to run in the Weatherby's Champion Bumper. It's not a, a race that they favour uh, but they think that with this horse that uh, he's got the mental wherewithal to cope for uh, to cope with the um, the the crowds and the noise of the Cheltenham Festival. So uh, the Weatherby's champion bumper very much on his radar. All right, well, that was yesterday, Paul Nichols and Gordon Elliott, and the roadshow has rolled on today as, uh, to where I am now, as I said, in the hollow bottom, not that far away from uh, Cheltenham Racecourse. And whilst everyone here was trying to digest the news of Constitution Hill, they were also trying to get their heads around the, the handicap entries. Uh, talking to the, the two handicappers was uh, quite interesting, Martin Greenwood and Andrew Mueller. And there were five trainers here as well. Um, key news points, uh, Jamie Snowden saying that Gar Law would likely be supplemented for the Ryanair chase, had not entered him for the race and then won so well last time on trials day that he feels that that will be the, the way forward for him, likely supplementary for the Ryanair chase. Uh, at a, a fair cost as well but as he pointed out he won 57 grand last time Ben Pauling has the distinction I think of being one of the only trainers perhaps bar Willie Mullins to have a representative in the supreme novices hurdle the Bering Bingham and the Albert Bar. his stable jockey Keelan Woods returns this week and as far as he's concerned Keelan Woods will get back on all the horses at the Cheltenham Festival particularly those owned by the Megson family he suggested that blinkers might go on the Mercurial Harper's Brook for the first time as well um, who else did we speak to? Uh, well, we uh, spoke to Fergal O'Brien. He was not completely dismissive of the idea that Dysart Enos could could have the Supreme Novice Hurdle as an option. He very much suggested that the Mayor's Novice Hurdle was the was the was the key race, and that was where he was pointing. But he clearly was anxious of brighter days ahead and how well she's regarded by by Gordon Elliott. Uh, the Twist and Davis team were here. They could have quite a strong numerical representation, as many as as ten to twelve runners. Quite a strong feeling for. At Gowell Road in the in the per temps, uh, quite an interesting new horse that's come from France who has has never uh, run in England before for the Boodles. Uh, got quite a warm mention from Willie Twist and Davis as well, and a lot of people were interested to know what was going to happen to Monbeg Genius, the uh, Ultima Chase uh, fancy, who has obviously got the Grand National as the ultimate aim. And this is what AJ O'Neill, son of trainer John Joe, had to say. As it stands, the plan will be to go to Kells on Saturday um, for the Premier Chase. If if it went very well and he came out of it well, possibly, um, and likewise, if it kind of came to an end too early, then it would still be an option. But please God, he'll run well there. We'll kind of make
It is Tuesday, so we welcome in Dan Barber with the time form perspective. Straight to Aintree seems seems to have taken over as straight to Cheltenham as the motif of our time, Dan Barber, as people believe that they can't beat Mullins. And if they can't beat Mullins, they certainly can't beat Mullins and Gordon Elliott. And they certainly can't beat Mullins and Gordon Elliott and Henry de Bromhead. So um, that brings us neatly to the most most important winner of the weekend, I, I think you'd argue. Calif Duberle, winner of the Adonis Hurdle at Kempton Park. Straight to Aintree for this beast. Yeah, that is a theme. And in some cases, Nick, it's actually straight to Punchestown, as we'll discuss with William Money. Um, I'd, you'd call this section missing in action, but unfortunately, the inaction is all one word, isn't it? Because we, it's the... It's the order of the day at the moment. It seems Pe- this patience and and targeting. We've spent for year. We've spent years discussing the obsession with Cheltenham, but I don't know if we're getting a shift as such. But it's quite a list. The more it grows as well, when you run down through those horses that are already stated in public as likely to miss the festival in terms of other targets. If you'd indulge me slightly, um. Bob Ollinger, six highest rated hurdle on time form figures. Straight oh, that, to eight. That's the one that really, really gets under my skin, that one. It feels like a resurgent horse like him. Why not have a crack? The gap isn't sufficient. The champion hurdle surely isn't a sufficiently bruising race on like, well, unless conditions are bottomless, to mean that you'll leave it behind there and a, a more strongly run race that you might hope you get at Cheltenham should suit that horse. But that's the sixth highest rated hurdle on t- in terms of this season's performances missing. You mentioned Cali de Berlay. He's second now in the juvenile ranks behind Sergino. We're not going to see Colwell Potter, the second highest rated novice hurdler, and slightly lower down the novice hurdle scale. It was it was stated that Tully Hill is likely to go straight to entry after the River Don rather than taking in Cheltenham on route. Adding a couple of others, if, if we may. Strong leader, straight to entry, it seems. And Pick Door, his was always the plan. He's the 10th highest rated chaser in training on time form ratings. And he too will be swerving the festival. I mean, you and, you and I, Nick, of course, we're more the generation of the mass singer and, and the 1% club rather than the generation game, Opportunity Knocks and Bullseye. But if I could nick a comment from the last named of those, it almost feels like this is what you could have won. Now, it's not a speedboat, but who's to say we're not missing a couple of aeroplanes? Well, I suspect they might end up with their BFH, Daniel. Yes, indeed. That's bus fare home for anyone who is not over the age of 45 and does not live in the UK. So, well done. Well done with the the inclusivity uh, from from you and me there um, <laughs> let, let's talk about other performances of note over the weekend and i i'm thinking particularly of barry connell and william money at punchestown because it, connell's a guy who has a go and let's face it he's not short of bombast when he likes one and he's not frightened to have a runner particularly in this race but he's having a swerve as well yeah it seems so he's winning a couple of small fields and having a nace i was deeply impressed with him i mean he was 45 thousand euros as a, as a store i think and you could you could probably add a zero to that after the two performances so far possibly a few quid more given what we saw at the caldwell dis- dispersal sale but he was deeply impressive at nace it led barry to suggest that he's the best bumper horse around and you know what on time farm ratings he's not that far off because the only two that are ahead of him at the moment, Jeroboam Mashian out for the season, we believe. And the other is a dream to share, who's based on last season's form rather than what he did this. And he too is going to miss the bulk of the campaign now, if not all of it. He is now the joint highest rated bumper horse in Britain and Ireland. And I suppose the interesting thing is he's going to avoid a hard race that some may have at the Cheltenham Festival, so there are no anti-postmark kits for the Punchestown bumper at the minute, but he may well just be the best horse anyway, and he's likely to go there fresher than some. All right, and um, just going back to where we started this conversation with Calif Duberle, if they had some dramatic change of heart and decided to run him in the Triumph Hurdle, where would he sit in the in the time form four-year-old pecking order at the moment? Yeah, a, a one that a pecking order that, of course, has been shown as well only yesterday of Burdett Road, who. I was making a case of maybe narrowing that gap. Now, Khalif de Burley doesn't have his, an entry at Cheltenham even. Um, Sergino, who who tops tops the list, obviously, he's on 146 with a P. Khalif de Burley is eight pounds behind him only. He's 138 P. It makes him second 
in the list. Um, not taking into account the fact, of course, that if they were also running in, in a fancy world, they were also running the triumph. Cargess and Calaconte with their Phillies allowance would be rated higher on the adjusted figures. But yeah, in terms of the Geldings, he's he's second best now, and he was a pound ahead of Burdett Road even before Burdett Road was taken out of the race. So an exciting horse, a fine prospect, but one of those it looks like Nichols is going to focus more on the longer term than. As as some have this this Cheltenham obsession, we know he's one man who doesn't mind ducking and diving around the festival if he feels he's got better options in the lead up to the festival, or indeed in the case of a couple at entry after it. Dan, thanks very much. That was the time form perspective. All right, it's Tuesday. And it's the day we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their global stallion app, and of course their stallion book. Uh, it's not often in this section that we head to Australia, but I'm delighted to do so today. But uh, unlike uh, several weeks, I don't have to give you any kind of long-winded in introduction because you are very familiar with the name Sangster and you are equally familiar with the name Swettenham Stud. What you might be less familiar with is how this now manifests itself uh, in Australia. Adam Sangster is with me now. Adam, a lot of people will have um, very fond memories of some of the the, the legacy that, that your father Robert and, and Swettenham Stud has left the sport, but it, it burns bright uh, it, particularly in Australia now. Just tell me where you're at. Oh, Nick, thank you for having me on. Yes, well, Swetnam is... Uh, yeah, Dad did leave a massive legacy down here. He loved visiting Australia. He married an Australian for a number of years and uh, and he sort of inter helped introduce the shuttle stallion business uh, down here in the, in the 80s. And uh, really, it's a, it's a thriving of Australian, Australian racing and breeding business is a thriving business. And... Uh, and everybody gets involved. I suppose we were one of the old Bart Cummings sort of saying one time, you know, we were, we were developed 400 years after most sort of modern racing. And uh, Australia's got some American technology and European culture. And uh, race courses are sort of made for the horses in Europe and made for the people down here. And it's, uh, you know, our thrive, our thirst for betting is incredible. And that's why, I'll, that's why I'll, I'll, we can actually put quite an quite a good amount of prize money onto uh, onto the races which was one of dad's and the sweatnam sort of uh uh what he loved down here because the prize money was so good and it continues to do so and uh, and sweatnam you know we've got a farm uh about an hour and a half outside melbourne northeast of melbourne on the way to on the way to sydney it's on the banks of the, the longest river in in victoria the golden river on the other side of the river is the now a huge Yulong stud and next door to us on the right is uh, is um, is Godolphin and then we've got a bloody good winery Mitchelton Winery <laughs> with a hotel there Nick so we're, we're, you know, physically we're all good and the horses are going well at the same time yes so, so the question why did you decide to, to to set up camp in Australia is rather redundant to be honest you've sold it ex extremely effectively and I know you're very proud now uh, you're a very proud Australian now really aren't you yeah, it did. I've got to say, I do ask uh, friends, uh, or, uh, English friends, if they have become an Australian, and did it change their business site? Because I reckon, I mean, I became an Aussie in, in 2005, and, uh, and I think yeah, people then realised, you know, that it was, I was serious and wanting to really plant my flag down here, and, you know, I've n never really looked back, and, you know, it's travel now is very easy to get 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 around the world and catch up with family and friends and it's a you know it's just a it's a it's a pleasure to be down here so it's total immersion for you adam how do you compete or how does any um stallion master or stud compete in australia now what are the what are the most important factors in sourcing your stallions uh, identifying ones that are going to work and and building a, a thriving business yeah, good question. I mean, a lot of it has changed now. A lot of people have actually read Dad's old book, The Horse Trader, and decided to get together and sort of buy these mini stallions at the sales. And uh, uh, many, many big syndicating sort of stallion sort of operations do do that. And it is, it is, Nick, it is no doubt it is very hard because a lot of us, a lot of the, the good cult yearlings, uh, there's, there's probably about 20, 20, cult syndicates which go into the major sales looking for these mini stallions so to answer your question it is very hard we've just got this uh, i mean very good son of snitzel out of a golden slipper winner called lofty strike we've just announced him and uh, and it's the to, uh, really we we sort of um 
really honeymoon the owner for quite some time it was owned 100 percent. so it's by uh by paul lafitas and so it's it is particularly hard uh to find them and they have been tied up quite some time so every good race or stallion which goes onto the market really we're very very keen on uh keen on on trying to tease it out now it's all about relationships and very lucky that uh, you know that i was in a position from a young age to 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 get to know a lot of these people who are quite senior in their operations at the moment and obviously with ben sangster sam sangster and and ollie sangster and and the family around we're, we're they're always helping me at the same time but it is it's yeah you've got to you know as the old boss my old boss used to say if you're going to set up a mousetrap you need the mice and uh i you need to get the mares and but really the smaller breeder down here has been squeezed quite significantly they're not they're finding they're not going to get they're not getting the money in the sales sales rings are finding it harder to get into the major sales and getting sort of pegged down a little bit and uh it is there's no doubt it is it is a lot harder but uh you know you you know you box tightly cut your chip accordingly and um you know it's like a good wine nick you know over the years you can mature yourself a little bit and uh, hopefully people still enjoy coming to sweat them and thanks the name you got horses that people on both hemispheres will be very familiar with and and through a, a, a allegiance with with al shakab you stand toronado and and wooded now toronado's record in europe is is okay but it's fair to say that he hasn't really captured the imagination uh, that's not the case in australia is it no, he's. Uh, I mean, it's, he's. He's been a very good stallion to me, and a very good stallion to my breeders. Uh, he. He has. He's a. He's very well sought after in. 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 In uh, the Far East, in. In Hong Kong, and only last night he just got beaten into second again with a good. 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 Uh, good gelding, but uh, he is. He's. Um, I mean, certainly the sales now. All the colts have always got either the Hong Kong interest in or certainly traders who want to uh, uh, buy the buy, buy the cult gelding and, and, and then trade them up. Hopefully that Hong Kong will buy them afterwards. So, and the fillies, you know, it's, it's, it's odd for a fillies and cults to, to, to work well on, on uh, as a sub, but he has had, he's had an amazing amount, 51% uh, to 49% sort of fillies winning listed, listed in group races. He's, he's, he's well sought after on that side. And, and Wooded, I mean, we were very lucky with Wooded in so much as that uh, Al Shakab had this very good son of Wooden Bassett and went to stud probably a little bit earlier than they wanted, but that was purely because of Wooden Bassett being purchased by Coolmore. And, um, of course, Coolmore sent Wooden Bassett down here to their Jerry's Plane operation, and we had the fastest son of, of Wooden Bassett in Wooden, the pre-Labbe winner, which we sort of uh, uh, told people was like our lightning, uh, our VRC lightning stakes over a thousand meters, and people got that. And uh, they saw his foals. I mean, he got, I think it was 85 foals his first season. And in his second season last year, he got more uh, more bookings while people had seen his first foals. And then, of course, his pedigree bounced up again with the, um, God, I can never get the name right, Nick. Um, What's that? Uh, it's named off the beer. Bueno. Oh, uh, uh, yes. A, a bucket of buc- Buccanero Fuerte. That's it. Uh, well, yeah. So he was new group one winner. And uh, and then, of course, the Dubai Weed half sister made 2.4 million. So the pedigree, elusive quality, it's really, really amped up with wooded. So we're pretty excited by that. And, um, you know, just speaking to Benoit from Al Shakab, you know, he's saying that. You know, trainers like them, they've got good attitude and the rest is ahead of him. Uh, and how many stallions in total have you got now? Uh, we've got six. And that's all I keep. And that's enough to, to sustain the business? Or is that a, that, that's a sort of sweet spot that you, you, you're you looking for? That is a sweet spot I'm looking for. I mean, last year we had five. This year we'll have six. We may even drop off another selling this year. It's uh, it's all about staffing as well. It's very hard to find good staff. We also have, you know, we 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 fold down about 150 mares as well. Um, so we've got a very big, big folding down operations. And I made a conscious decision five, six years ago, which I'm pleased I did. To we don't consign any yearlings anymore i mean we used to consign i mean i've been down here since 1991 and we've consigned we've we've consigned yearlings for many years but uh, uh, it was just just hard to go to the sales each each time with a big draft 
and also keep the expectations of um, of, of your own breeders what they wanted and also I, with stallions I found that I was competing with my clients and friends who had who had horses and other drafts so we we actually stopped that and we placed them around other younger more sort of that uh, they they had their sort of consignment yielding draft business as a as a as a primary and that's that helps us and it gives my staff enough time we have a pretty busy season it's a cramped season our season's a month shorter than your breeding season up there and it comes into christmas time and so our staff can get time off and hey it's 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 a work balance at the moment and it's hard to find hand to mouth and i know thoroughbred breeders australia and also also always trying to get new people involved in in the business which they're doing, which they're doing, doing well because I've got to say at the races last few weekends Nick I see a lot of young at the races which is a really good sign so you know it's it's working people enjoy it people love to go go to the races now and uh, you know it's it's but to go back to answer your question yes six stallions is is, pro- is my optimum and uh, even even five so it works well all right thanks to all my guests today David Yates still with me and he has a tip for you we go to Southern Nick for the 8.30 race, titled uh, the Always Gamble Responsibly uh, with Bet UK Handicap. And it's number two, Sassy Redhead, a horse who's been in really consistent, good form all summer, uh, scored at Lingfield two starts ago, and then was beaten half a length over this course and distance 12 days ago. William Stone's team in good form, Marco Gianni on top, another good run, surely, in store from Sassy Redhead. 8.30 race at Southall Selection number two, Sassy Redhead. Great stuff. David, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. What an interesting time it is. That was Tuesday, February the 27th. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you by Timeform, the trusted source of racing data and analysis, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the racing app in partnership with Fitstairs.